Well, our daily lives are filled with responses to all kinds of inputs and stimulus from the world around us. We're continually responding to something or someone. That word response is defined as something constituting a reply or reaction. Or it may imply a quick or spontaneous reaction to a person or thing that serves as a stimulus. Well, how we respond depends greatly on our stage of maturity in life, our age. Also our formal and informal training or instruction. And then just simply experience, life experience. And the emotions that experience registers in our souls. What I mean by stage of maturity or age can be illustrated this way. A baby responds to pain, such as from hunger or an uncomfortable diaper, by crying because they have not matured enough to be able to speak and express what's wrong. So mom or dad, who are more mature in age, respond appropriately by feeding the baby or changing that diaper. Well, some responses are the result of formal training. Let's take sports, for example. It's football season, yeah. So we'll use that as an example. Our area football teams are in daily practices right now. And some of our guys have got bruises to show for it. And coaches are out there giving instruction on how they want a certain play to be run. The coach is expecting the players to respond by lining up and and run the play as he has instructed them. And if the players respond correctly to that training, the play will be executed properly. However, if the players respond with hesitation or misunderstanding, the play is not going to be executed properly, and the coach's response then will exhibit some displeasure, probably, Expressed in the form of louder, more excited instruction. Like line up and run it again and do it right this time. Well, some responses are based on experience, right? Experiences that involve emotion. Now, those emotions could be anywhere on the spectrum from complete happiness to sadness. From peace to anxiousness. From contentment to anger or resentment. Those previous life experiences produce emotions that then shape how we respond in the future to similar experiences. Well, let me give you an example that kind of demonstrates all three of these factors. Age, formal instruction, emotional experience. I want you to concentrate on the first thought that enters your mind when I give you this phrase. Are you ready? The first day of school. Now all across the room we've got varied responses to that phrase. Perhaps the younger children, like my twins, Carson and Emma, would be excited about going to first grade. Seeing their friends again. Meeting their new teacher. And of course enjoying their favorite part of the day, which would be lunch and recess. And then there's the middle schooler, perhaps a more mixed response of looking forward to getting back with friends, but 
some anxiety about new teachers and subjects that are becoming more challenging. And then there's the high schooler. Their reaction is, oh, do we have to start back? Their response is dread for the oncoming class assignments and knowing that the days of sleeping until noon are now confined to just Saturdays. And then there's the varied response of parents. There's the mom sending her child to kindergarten for the first time, and there may be some shedding of tears. But then there's the mom of older children that's uh, a little more joyful in their (laughs) response to the first day of school, like, yes, it's starting. And then, of course, there's teachers and administrators. And their experience and training will will create greatly varied responses among them as well from looking forward to seeing students, being able to train and influence them, to perhaps fighting against some more negative emotions about the anticipation of the many challenges of the work ahead. So you can see that we can have greatly varied responses to the same situation that are driven by our maturity, our training, and our previous experience with that situation. So now turning our thoughts more relative to why we are gathered here today, which is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to consider your response to this phrase. The Lord reigns. I would submit to you that the response to that phrase, the Lord reigns, has two broad universal responses. The righteous rejoice that the Lord reigns, and the unrighteous reject it. So I've narrowed the categories of people to two. The righteous and the unrighteous. And depending on which you are, greatly determines your response to this powerful statement of absolute truth that the Lord reigns. Now that begs the question, who are the righteous? And who are the unrighteous? Well, we'll turn to God's Word to answer that. Please turn with me to Psalm 97. Psalm 97. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, you can use one of the Bibles in the chair back in front of you. And you can find Psalm 97 on page 286. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast 
in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is God's word. If you're taking notes today, I have just one main point and three sub-points. Our main overarching point is God sovereignly rules over all his creation in perfect righteousness and justice and does so through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God sovereignly rules over his creation in perfect righteousness and justice and does so through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look at the response of creation in verses 4 through 6. The response of the unrighteous in verse 7. And the response of the righteous in verses 8 through 12. Although it is not explicitly stated in a title for this psalm, biblical manuscripts point to David as the author of Psalm 97. And this psalm falls into a group from Psalm 93 to Psalm 100 that carry this same theme of the sovereign rule of God over all creation. And I'd encourage you to read these psalms as a group, perhaps in your quiet time this week, and meditate on that theme of God's sovereign rule and look for the descriptions of God in those psalms. Here's a sampling of what you'll find. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. He is judge of the earth. The Lord is a great God and great king above all gods. He is our maker. Splendor and majesty are before him. The Lord our God is holy. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. I would encourage you to spend time in those passages. Well, the vision of Psalm 97 is for the kingdom of God to be established on earth. And he begins with a declaration of absolute truth. The Lord reigns. This is not open for debate. It's non-negotiable. The Lord reigns. It's an emphatic declaration of truth. And it should be that the earth rejoice at this truth. The New American Standard Version reads, The Lord reigns, may the earth rejoice. May the many islands be joyful. So it's looking to a condition that's not yet fully realized. The correct response to the declared truth that the Lord Jehovah reigns is that the whole earth should be glad. But that's not the case today, is it? Not all people rejoice that God reigns. 
In fact, many people loathe the fact that God reigns. They do all they can to deny that He reigns. And thus they desire a God of their own making. One that does not hold them accountable for their sin. And what this means is that the worship of the true God is much lacking among the peoples of the earth. This is the very reason for the need for missions. John Piper gets right to the very heart and greatest need for missions in this short but powerful statement. Missions exist because worship does not. Missions exist because worship does not. This is what should drive our desire for missions. To see God worshipped in spirit and in truth among every people group on this planet. This is what the Lord commissioned His church to do until He returns. This is the great commission found in Matthew 18. Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. Pray for this. Pray specifically for the people and places on the earth where the worship of God does not exist. Just like we just did for the Gola people of Liberia. There are people groups you can pray for every day. And pray for God to show us, CCBC, how we can specifically participate in this great commission to bring true worship to God among all the peoples by supporting and being involved in the planning of gospel preaching churches. Well, this opening declaration that the Lord reigns can be stated as the sovereignty of God. And we say that phrase often in biblical discussion, the sovereignty of God. But what does it mean? It can become one of those abstract phrases. It gets so familiar. And we know that it's true. And we know that it must be really important. But we're not completely sure why. Why is this important to you as a Christian? Well, sovereignty means God has absolute rule and authority over all creation. It is an attribute without which God could not be God. His sovereignty includes all His other attributes, such as omniscience. God is all-knowing. But if He were not all-knowing, that means he would have to respond to something that he did not know about and would then be subject to it. And in relation to the subject of creation, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Psalm 33 declares, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God's absolute rule gives substance to all the other doctrines. A.W. Pink in his book, The Sovereignty of God, states it this way. It is the foundation of Christian theology, the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth, the sun around which all the lesser orbs are grouped. This foundational theology matters because our understanding of it determines our response to God and to all the things that, that, that life in this sin-cursed world brings. The sovereignty of God is a comfort to the Christian 
Because in all things, God is in complete control. So for the Christian, this means that anything we're facing in this life, all the struggles, the temptations, the pains, the joy, the blessings, are ordained by a sovereign God that is always working to complete what he began in you at your conversion. Well, as we read the text, there's a stark transition from verse 1 to verses 2 and 3. From this vision of calling for rejoicing at the sovereignty of God to a dramatic picture of God's presence on the earth. Read with me in verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around well, this foreboding description of the manifestation of God would be familiar to a Jewish reader. Exodus 19 describes this awesome display of God when he came down to Mount Sinai and called Moses into his presence to give him the law. Verse 16 says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp Trembled. You can also read a vivid picture of, of God's presence in Psalm 18, verses 7 through 15, where you're going to find similar phrases. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. And then when we look at verse 3 in Psalm 97, it graphically declares the seriousness of opposing God. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. Again, we can look to historical events as proof of God's judgment through consuming fire. In Leviticus 10, we can read about two of Aaron's sons being consumed by fire for offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. And in Genesis 19, we read of fire from heaven that utterly destroyed the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So how then is one to rejoice at the sovereignty of God, yet with the understanding that God is a consuming fire? Well, the answer lies in the second part of verse 2. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 89, 14 repeats this same description. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. The foundation is that layer upon which everything else is built. For God, the foundation, the very starting point for everything he does is righteousness and justice. But why does that matter? Well, if God were not righteous in all that he does, we could not trust him to be true. And a presence of God wrapped in dark clouds and fire before him would bear a response of fear, yes. But it would be a fear rooted in doubt, not faith. C.H. Spurgeon eloquently describes this marvelous truth about God. There he abides... He's speaking of his throne of righteousness and justice. 
There he abides. He never departs from strict justice and right. His throne is fixed upon the rock of eternal holiness. Righteousness is his immutable attribute. And judgment marks his every act. What, though we cannot see or understand what he does, yet we are sure that he will do no wrong to us or to any of his creatures. Is not this enough to make us rejoice in him and adore him? Divine sovereignty is never tyrannical. Jehovah is an autocrat, but he is not a despot. Absolute power is safe in the hands of him who cannot err or act unrighteously. Friends, that's why the earth should rejoice. Because God can only act in righteousness and justice. It's all he can do. And I opened with an emphasis on response. And in the order of this psalm, the first response we see to the sovereignty of God is in creation. Look with me in verses 4 through 6. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. Well, creation gets it right. Creation responds correctly. There's no resistance. There's no rebellion. There's no hesitation at the presence of God. There's only submission and reverence and proclamation. The earth sees and trembles. That's reverence. The mountains melt like wax. That's submission. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. That's proclamation. That's telling the good news that salvation belongs to the Lord. And just to make certain I'm clear on what I mean by creation, I'm speaking of all the things in the universe that God spoke into being with the exception of mankind whom God made with his hands. Men and women are made in the image of God with a soul that will live eternally. So I'm referring to all that created order that does not have a soul. The imagery of verses 4 through 6 is written in this historical view, looking back to Mount Sinai and that powerful manifestation of God's presence, but also to a future revelation at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can find Jesus' description of his return in Matthew chapter 24, and you'll find similar language to this in verses 29 through 31. The prophet Isaiah also declared a similar reaction of creation at Christ's return. In, verse, in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, it says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
The Apostle Paul even personified creation and its longing for the redemption of Christ's return, to be set free from this curse of sin. We can find that in Romans 8, 19 through 22. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The right response to the sovereignty of God is to worship Him. And speaking of creation and worship, Jesus had something to say about it upon His triumphal entry into Jerusalem when the Pharisees were rebuking Him for people praising Him. And He responded and said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So we see... Verses 4 through 6, that creation responds correctly to the sovereignty of God. Now let's look at the response of people, and specifically the response of the unrighteous. Now recall in that opening that I said the response to the phrase, the Lord reigns, has two broad universal responses. The righteous rejoice, and the unrighteous reject it. So now we need to define the righteous and the unrighteous. Well, let's first ask, what does it mean to be righteous? It means to act in accordance with God's divine law. Perfect obedience to the law. In Romans 3, Paul argues that no one is righteous. Not even the Jews as the special chosen race of God. Referencing Psalm 14, Paul declares, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So scripture is clear that all people are unrighteous. So how is it possible then to become righteous? There has to be one that fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. And that one is Jesus Christ. Christ came and lived in perfect obedience to God's moral law. Well, how then is the perfect righteousness of Christ transferred to us? There's still a gap there, right? It's through Christ's death on the cross that we are made righteous. What makes the cross necessary? Because in order for God to remain just, He must pour out His wrath and judge the sins of the unrighteous. So this is how God, whose throne rests upon righteousness and justice, becomes both just and the justifier of our souls. Jesus, the Son of God, left the glory of heaven. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived in perfect obedience to the law and remained sinless. He was crucified unjustly upon a cross. 
He bore our sins in His body upon the cross. He died under the full wrath of God the Father, was buried on the third day, rose again, signifying His triumph over death and the curse of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes this incredible transfer of righteousness. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. That is an incredible truth. This is the gospel, my friends. This is the good news that your impossible situation of being able to live perfectly under God's law has been completed for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. Your unrighteousness was imputed to Him. And His righteousness is imputed to you. So that now, amazingly, a guilty sinner can stand before God and be declared righteous on the merits of Christ's righteousness. It's amazing. Well, how does this happen? It's by faith in Christ alone. How does one come to this faith? Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is how the unrighteous are made righteous. This is why the righteous rejoice that God reigns. So now having defined the righteous and the unrighteous, let's look at the response of the unrighteous to the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. God has clearly revealed through His law given to Moses that we are to worship Him only. He says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Well, you may be tempted to think, well, I'm okay on this because I don't make carved images and I don't bow down and worship them. But an idol is anything we give attention to more than God. An idol is anything we give attention to more than God. And we have all done that. We have all loved other things more than God. And God commands that we love Him supremely. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. The heart reveals what is true of us. We always do what our heart desires. We always do what our heart desires. And the problem with that is that we don't always desire God. We tend towards sin. The pattern of our life reveals what is true in our hearts. Anything that is loved more than God is an idol. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 tells us the practice or the life pattern of the unrighteous. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Did you see in that list that idolaters are named as unrighteous? Idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it gets even worse. Romans 2.8 reveals what awaits those who love their unrighteous ways. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The imagery we read earlier in verse 3, of fire going before him and consuming those that oppose him, is the ultimate reality for the idolater that does not repent. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Galatians 6. The proper response of the unrighteous to the proclamation that the Lord reigns is to be ashamed of their worship of something other than the one true God. Shame. The proper response of the unrighteous is to repent of their sinful patterns of life and respond in faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work upon the cross as the only way to be reconciled to God. So let's look now at the proper response of the righteous. We've looked at the proper response of creation the response of the unrighteous. Let's look at the response of the righteous in verses 8 through 12. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Well, verses 8 and 9 celebrate the exaltation of God as supreme over all the systems of false gods 
And it serves to highlight the shame of the unrighteous in their idolatry. The righteous should hate the lies of idol worship because it rails against the exaltation of God. The righteous judgment of God upon false gods is a delight to the righteous as God Most High is exalted far above all gods. The true God is lifted up and the false God is made low. Proverbs 13.5 says, The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. Well, the first part of verse 10 calls the righteous to have a love-hate relationship. We are to love the Lord and we're to hate evil. We're to hate sin. The evidence of our conversion is a growing love for the Lord and a growing hatred for the sin that so easily besets us. The Apostle Paul expressed what every maturing believer experiences in Romans 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Brothers and sisters, that's why we need each other. We need to gather each Lord's Day and encourage one another and show brotherly love for one another by exhorting one another against the fight in this fight against sin. We show we care for each other when we start asking about what's most important. And that is our love for the Lord and our battle against sin. This is exactly what Romans 12 calls for. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So how are you doing in the battle against sin? Are you compromising? Are you apathetic? Have you lost hope that you're never going to gain freedom over that habitual sin? Are you feeling so ashamed at giving in to temptation that you're afraid to tell someone and ask for help? Dear brother and sister, if that's where you find yourself, I plead with you to cry out to the Lord for His mercy. It's sure. It's a sure mercy and forgiveness. And reach out to a mature, trusted believer for counsel and help. Your elders are here for you. We want to. We want to help you in this battle against sin. I assure you that you'll find mercy and love rather than the judgment and shame that keeps you from going there right now. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Mercy. 
Not shame, not guilt, not judgment, not criticism. Mercy. And we all need mercy. The steadfast love of God for his children will not leave us in our sin. God loves us so much that he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And he does it not in punishment or harshness or shame, but to bring us back to the joy and blessing of forgiveness and obedience. There's joy and blessing in that. I want to share with you an excerpt from Paul David Tripp's daily devotional book, New Morning Mercies. And this is in reference to the joy of obedience in confessing and forsaking sin. It is hard to overestimate the grace that motivates each act of obedience in your life and mine. Sinners tend not to esteem authority. Sinners like to write their own rules. Sinners are good at convincing themselves that their wrongs are not that wrong. Sinners tend to believe in their own autonomy. Sinners tend to think they are wiser than they are. Sinners tend to have a moral code that is formed more by their desires than by God's law. Sinners tend to think they don't need what they don't desire. Sinners tend to be self-focused and self-excusing. And sinners tend to crave what God has prohibited. Sinners tend to opt for short-term pleasure over long-term gain. Sinners tend to rebel rather than submit. Because all of the above statements are true, it is a miracle of amazing grace that any of us ever chooses to obey God. It is even more a miracle that we can find joy in obeying someone whom we cannot see, hear, or touch. It is a wonder of transforming grace that the heart of a self-focused human being can abandon the pursuit of his own little kingdom and give itself to serve the purposes of the kingdom of another. Any time we desire in word, thought, or action to do what pleases God, we are being rescued, transformed, and empowered by His grace. Romans 6.14 confirms this. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. You cannot prosper when there is hidden sin. And we can't take it lightly. 
we must take the action necessary to forsake it and pursue righteousness. We must hear the words of our Lord. He said, take it seriously. And he gave this analogy. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's the seriousness in which we should take sin. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs provides a list of diagnostics to assess if we are growing in our hatred of sin. There are six of them. I want to give these to you. Don't tune me out because I said it's a Puritan pastor. How can we know we have come to hate sin? We need to ask these questions. How can we know we have come to hate sin? If our hatred of sin is universal. The one who hates sin hates all kinds of sin. Not just selects. How can we know we have come to hate sin? If our hatred of sin is fixed. There should be no appeasing of sin. But rather an abolishing of the thing that is hated. Go back to Jesus' words in Matthew 5. If our hatred of sin is a more rooted affection than anger. Anger can be appeased. But hatred remains and opposes the object. How can we know if we've come to hate sin? If we hate sin wherever it is found. We must hate sin in others, but we must hate it foremost in ourselves. How can we know we have come to hate sin? If we hate the greatest sin in the greatest measure. If we hate all sins in a just proportion, not being offended by the slight flaw in another while overlooking a much greater offense in ourselves. How can we know we have come to hate sin? If we can be reproved for sin and not get angry. If we truly hate sin, we will welcome whatever help we may get in dealing with it and driving it from our lives. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And Proverbs 10.17 says, Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. But he who rejects reproof leads others astray. O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. As we grow in obedience to this command to love the Lord and hate the sin, we receive the blessings of the protection of sovereign God. It is not a promise of deliverance from struggle or pain or persecution that we're going to see in this life. But it is a promise that God's steadfast love for the righteous 
will endure forever. And he will carry us through every affliction. Verse 11 says that light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Have you ever said, I've lost my joy in the Lord? That's a painful place to be for a Christian. It's heavy on the soul. Because the mind knows the truth that God is sovereign. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. That he always provides for his children. But there's still a heaviness of heart, a disconnect from what the mind knows and what the heart is feeling. May I suggest to you in those times that you feel that way and perceive life that way because you've taken your focus, your spiritual eyes, off of sovereign God and fixed them upon the disappointments and the struggles and the evil and sin of this cursed world. Psalm 119.37 is an excellent prayer to cry out to the Lord in those times. It says, turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. To whom should we look? Psalm 16.8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And our ultimate example in obedience to the Father is the Lord Jesus. And we read these wonderful words in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So look to Jesus. And as we read in verse 12, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is the crescendo of the psalm that's been building from verse 1, from that opening declaration that the Lord reigns. Why should the righteous rejoice? Because we've been delivered from the righteous and justified wrath of God toward our sin. We should rejoice in the fact that God reigns. Just purely in that He reigns. Paul instructed Christians to rejoice always. In Philippians 4, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And as Jason read earlier from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
Rejoice in your salvation. Give thanks to sovereign God for your salvation. This is what He has done for you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He predestined you to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He has redeemed you by the blood of Jesus Christ and forgiven all your sins. He has given us an inheritance in Christ Jesus. He has sealed us with His Holy Spirit. You who were so far away have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. Because of the riches of His mercy, He has made us alive together with Christ. He has seated us in Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And He has saved us by His grace through the gift of faith. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord for He has made you righteous. Give thanks to His holy name. He is God Most High. The Lord reigns. How will you respond to that absolute truth? May it be that the unrighteous respond in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And may it be that the righteous respond in rejoicing and thanksgiving unto God Most High. Let's pray. God Most High, we exalt you and we praise you. We praise you, sovereign God, that you reign. And we praise you that you have made us righteous in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We praise you for your mercy. And your grace upon us. Oh Father make us a people. That rejoice in you always. Make us a people that love you. And hate sin. God make us a people. Quick. To confess our sin. And run to you. Make us holy. And make us forever glad in you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.